In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for all of your blessings. We especially thank you for the gift of the Holy Liturgy during this Holy Week. We pray that through our participation in the liturgy, we may be more and more conformed to your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we may properly discern your will and so grow in holiness and be able to, pre- to preach the gospel to all we meet. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Uh, so, a couple of announcements. One is that uh, next month we won't have a meeting, but we will have the oblation of the, those who are already novices. Um, if you have been coming to meetings for more than a year, but you haven't been sort of officially received as a novice, would you email me or call me, please? Because we'll, we'll work something out. So what we're doing is we've had so many people express interest uh, in so many different circumstances in their own lives and different places and so on. We're trying to be as accommodating as possible. But it is, I think, important that, that there be sort of about a year time of discernment to see if this is... So you get to know us a little bit. We get to know you. Um, and uh, so in order that... It, it doesn't happen that someone sort of shows up right after we have new oblate novices uh, uh, publicly received, and then they have to wait like almost two years before oblation. Uh, we're going to have oblation twice this year, once in May and once in November. And so, um, so the, the next, the second Sunday in May, will be oblation for all of those of you who are already novices or those who have been coming for more than a year but haven't officially been received into the novitiate, but then we'll need to talk just to make sure I'm, I'm aware of that situation. Uh, and so this, Father Edward, this is something we should send around more or less right away. And then afterwards, I'd like to have a, a celebration <laughs> and, and just... Uh, have a chance to talk and visit with each other rather than uh, have me or Father Brendan just lecture. Uh, I, I know you appreciate our lectures and I thank you for your positive feedback, uh, but I think it's important that uh, we celebrate this blessing that God has given us, all this uh, interest in the monastery and in the, the Oblate program. Uh, it's, it's important to celebrate once in a while. This is, this is a part of, um, certainly a part of Benedictine life. <laughs> I have a, a friend, um, I uh, haven't seen her in a long time. Uh, she, she's married and lives out in Connecticut now, but uh, she's Presbyterian. Uh, but we, we were musicians together in lots of ensembles. And when I entered the monastery, I, I invited her to play for big liturgies and things like that. And once she came and she said, you know, you Catholics are always, you've always got some feast going on. <laughs> like some saint or other every day. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. That's because we... Uh, we live in the, in the radiance of the gospel, the good news, uh, Christ's triumph. What I'd like to speak to you about today, so I've been going through uh, the, the vows that Benedictines make, uh, conversion of life and stability and then obedience. And so last month I talked about obedience, but I wanted really to ground it in two things. First, the, the idea of what we're really doing is trying to obey God's will. And then in monastic life, there is a particular uh, sort of sacramental element to it. We have a superior who can tell us 
You must do this. And then obedience is very, if it's not easy, it's at least clear what you're supposed to do. You know, if your lawful superior says, uh, I just had a discussion about this, so a brother was kind of um, being slack about feeding the cats. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I didn't have a chance to say this to him because I think it dawned on him before we got to this point. But if he were to ask me, you know, I don't understand why it has to be me to feed the cats. There's a very simple answer. I'm the superior and I've asked you. <laughs> so, so now it becomes God's will for you. You know, as long as uh, I don't ask him something that's contrary to God's law, he's, he's made a promise to do it. Okay? Even if it's something not very substantial like feeding the cats. On the other hand, the, the lovely thing about this is that even something as humble as feeding the cats can be uh, my active love for Christ because I'm now doing this out of obedience to him. And uh, so there's a very strong sense in which monks have these, this is St. Benedict says, that monks desire to be in monasteries under superiors because that gives us a way of hearing Christ's voice in a very obvious, clear way. I said last month that uh, there is an, an analogy or an analogous sense in which uh, when married couples profess vows to one another, their mutual obedience is of a similar type. So it's a, it's a weighty reason for doing something is, for example, my spouse asked me to. Okay, that would be a, a good weighty reason for doing something. Um, so, but it's also the case that many of our oblates are not married, and so I need to speak in some other ways about how, as an oblate, each of us can live out uh, a promise of obedience to God's will. How do we know what God's will is? And so what I'm going to talk about today is uh, what we call discernment in the religious life. And in particular, I'm going to talk about Benedictine discernment. Uh, so let me explain. I've, I've handed out two packets to you and uh, two different styles of discernment. Uh, the first one, the longer one, it says some principles of Ignatian discernment by Warren, how do you say that, Father? Sazama, S.J. So he taught at uh, Tony's high school, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's great. Um, the reason I put this on here, I'll, I'll get to it a little more uh, further on, is that this is, for most religious today, this is the model of discernment. Before Vatican II, it was the only model of discernment. For, uh, all religious were taught the Ignatian principles of discernment. Uh, and so it's, it's a very important part of our Catholic history and spirituality even today. I was very impressed after the last conclave. I happened to be able to attend a meeting of religious superiors with Cardinal George. And um, when he was talking about, he, he obviously he didn't say we voted for or anything like that, but he was talking about the process of discernment. Um, he stands before this picture of the Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel. You know, which side am I going to be on? This decision that I'm going to make today to cast a vote for the next successor to Peter uh, will be part of the judgment that I'll have to face. You know, God will ask me to answer for this decision, so I have to con consider it carefully. So how do I do that? What principles do I use? And I remember as he walked through his own thought process, sharing this with us, I thought that's, that's Ignatian spirituality. So as an oblate of Mary Immaculate, he was formed in this type of discernment because this is kind of the default 
uh, understanding of discernment. Uh, and I, I remember in particular, uh, he said, I, I was ready to vote, I knew I was ready to vote when I was at peace with whatever outcome. With, with either the, the person I'm going to vote for becoming Pope or somebody else. I'm at peace with it, whoever it is. Uh, so this is... Uh, a good indication that we've deliberated long enough and we're ready to make a decision. The other reason I wanted to share this with you, though, is in some ways this is going to be a little more practical for you. Uh, Ignatian discernment is more focused on making particular decisions. So, for instance, if I have a decision to make, should I stay with my current job or should I take this job offer I've gotten over here? Uh, should I marry this person or should I wait? Uh, should I... Um, uh, should I uh, exercise today or not? <laughs> so the particular decisions, uh, Ignatian discernment is mainly focused on that, and I'll, I'll touch on this a little bit later on. So this is a process by which I open myself to all the possibilities. Again, as I said about uh, what Cardinal George was saying, uh, I have to be open to whatever outcome. However, God will dispose things after I make a decision. I have to be at peace with that. But I have to welcome all the relevant possible things. I have to check myself to make sure I'm not invested in one or the other, you know, in some way that's not healthy. So anyway, there are these, um, there are these principles that Father Sazama has drawn up for us, and I thought that would be helpful for you to take with you. Um, but what I wanted to speak to you about, because you're Benedictine Oblates, I think it's important for me to speak to you about Benedictine discernment. One historical thing that's good for you to know is that Ignatius of Loyola, uh, if you know his life story, uh, when he was guarding uh, some fort against an attack of the French troops, he was hit by a cannonball in his leg, and the leg was shattered, and uh, he spent many, many months... Uh, healing from this. It was very, very painful. And uh, this, this time he spent in bed, uh, he had a book of uh, knightly uh, stories you know, about courtly knights fighting battles and such. And then he had a book of the lives of the saints. And uh, he, he noticed that when he read these books about knights, he was very energized. But when he, got, when he put the book aside, he was sad. And then when he read this book of saints, uh, he was energized. And when he put the book down, he kept thinking about it. And he kept thinking, what if I did that? You know? And it brought him great peace to uh, read about the lives of the saints. And so he determined that he was going to give his life to God. And one of the first things he did was he went to the Abbey of Montserrat, which is a, a monastery actually of our congregation in Spain. And... Um, he learned there uh, from Father Cisneros principles of Benedictine discernment. And from that he derived, uh, he sort of extrapolated from that when he founded the Jesuits in order to give his men principles for making decisions when they're out far away. You know, they have to make decisions about how to handle... You know, if your father, uh, Matteo Ricci in China, you have to figure out, how am I going to preach the gospel to uh, a, a group of people who've never heard it before, who have a totally different language, different customs, and so on? How am I going to discern the best way to preach the gospel to them? So Ignatius wanted to equip the Jesuits who were out on mission 
with these principles for encountering difficult situations and hearing God's voice in, in it, okay? Uh, but he based his principles in Benedictine discernment, okay? So that's, that's the thing I want you to understand. If I'm talking about both of them in some ways, or if I, if I give you the Ignatian principles for your own edification, uh, just know that they're connected historically to uh, our own order. The other thing I should say about Ignatius, you know, uh, Our Lady of Montserrat, the, the statue of Our Lady on the north side of the church, uh, when he left Montserrat, he took his armor and he laid it before Our Lady and dedicated his life uh, to her. So uh, we have, uh, on occasion, had events with the Jesuits here uh, uh, under sort of the umbrella of Our Lady of Montserrat. We had a, a concert a couple of years ago uh, of music, <coughs> medieval Montserrat. Yes? on whether one is, is living a life of virtue or not. And that's something if you go into more detail with Ignatian discernment. So for instance if I'm living a life of sin the things that will bring me a sort of feeling of peace will not necessarily be healthy for me. If, if one's living and really striving to, to work and live for God then a sense of peace is a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because the, the kingdom of God is, is peace and joy and justice in the Holy Spirit. So this, the peace and joy are signs that I've arrived at a sense of what God is asking me to do. In, in this Ignatian sense. Okay? Uh, because, again, uh, I would say in, in other schools of discernment, sometimes we discern that we have to do things that are going to be difficult. Uh, actually, Father Sazama mentions this. You know, the third principle is courage. You know, if we're, if we're going to really discern properly, part of our openness to whatever happens has to include courage because we have to be open to the possibility. For example, if you're Thomas More, you have to be open to the possibility that if you keep denying the king, he's going to kill you. <laughs> if, you if you keep denying that he has the power uh, to govern the Church of England, you, you might just have to come to peace with something that's not very pleasant. <laughs> right? seen this? Amazing film. Amazing, uh, amazing guy, by the way. He met his wife at Lynchburg Hospital. <laughs> um, and I was talking to my brothers about this this morning. Um, when, when they're storming this ridge, they have to climb up this rope ladder that's 50 feet or something into... They're going to get shot, you know? They, know. they all know this. But the, the commander says, go! And they all climb up there. And... Uh, I'm sure they're all completely afraid. 
but they're courageous because they meet that fear with energy. You know, they they meet it because they know it's the right thing to do. They're 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 fighting for their country and so on and so. It gives them the courage to do, and so same for us. We can have the courage to do things for God, even though at first it might frighten us. But we say, no, I have to. Uh, this is the right thing to do. I can't let fear turn me back, so I have to fight against it. I'm going to come back to courage, so if you don't mind, let me get on to Benedictine discernment, because courage is a big part of that. But it's also, you, you see, it's also an indignation discernment. So... Uh, I'm going to go pretty literally from my notes here to make sure I uh, stick to the script, and uh, we, we can uh, we can finish on time. So uh, I, I mentioned already that Ignatian discernment is is grounded in principles that go back to the earliest monks. Um, but monastic discernment uh, tends to be, in my opinion, a little more thoroughgoing and, and pervasive. It's a practice of being attentive all the time, if possible. You know, so paying attention to what God wants of me at each moment of the day, not just for big decisions. Okay? So you can be used for big decisions, but uh, it's, it's primarily a question of uh, if I'm going to obtain or uh, attain purity of heart, then my, my heart has to be pure. I can't have any moment where I'm, I'm uh, wavering. <laughs> and so this, this requires great vigilance. And this is one of the reasons we go into monasteries, because um, this, this gives us the sort of separation from distractions that makes it possible to be aware of what's going on in my mind and my heart as much as possible. Okay, so now again, we'll have to make adjustments for people in the world. But I also think this can be very helpful for you. <clears throat> I mentioned that this requires habits uh, like silence. So if, I, if I'm speaking all the time or if I'm listening to music all the time or watching television all the time, uh, I'm not going to be as attentive to what's going on in my mind and heart as I need to be if I'm going to be paying attention to them. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a tautology there. But um, uh, we, we need interiority. We have to be aware that we're thinking. Um, I had a, a friend, well, he's still a friend of mine. I don't see him very often, but uh, when we were spending time together, uh, he's a little older than I am. He said to me once, you know, I was 35 before I realized I had a will. Uh, and I was 35 before I realized I was thinking all the time. You know, so first to become aware that, that our minds are going all the time. Uh, our, our feelings, that we're always feeling something or other, even if it's sort of nothing. <laughs> they're, they're, we can always monitor and check to see kind of where we're at, how we feel. Um, but there's a constant sort of narrative going on in our brains. And if you ever stop, uh, does anyone here practice meditation besides Tony? <laughs> so you know when you try to meditate, what's the first thing that happens? Your mind starts going a mile a minute, Right? And so Benedictine discernment is the process of becoming aware of that narrative going on and then uh, you know, sort of assessing it, saying, I don't have to think these things. I don't have to embrace them, you know, this, this, this thought process that's going on. I might if it's something good, but if it's not something good, say with uh, Ignatius feeling sadness, I don't have to feel sad. I could go back and read the lives of the saints <laughs> and, and uh, feel, feel uh, encouraged. 
So, so silence gives us the space to become aware that our minds are at work all the time. It's um, trying to stop ourselves from thinking. It's like trying to hold an inflatable thing underwater, you know. Eventually it's going to spring back up. And the better thing to do is just become aware of our thoughts and then to know how to embrace the good ones and reject the bad ones, okay? Uh, but this requires what I'm calling interiority, an awareness that inside of us there is this monologue going all the time. Patience, that's another important one. We're going to learn by doing. We're going to learn by experience. Uh, this is a thing uh, I have to keep encouraging the brothers and the younger brothers to be okay with. You're going to make mistakes. It's like riding a bicycle. You can't learn to ride a bicycle by reading a book. <laughs> you have to get on the bicycle and start pedaling. And I'm sure that all of us, when we learned to ride a bicycle, fell over once or twice. It's just, And then, you know, the, the next time you get up and get back on the bicycle, you go a little farther. And eventually you think, oh, this is easy. <laughs> but uh, the first, we have to try it. We have to make a trial. And we, we might fail. That's okay. So we have to be patient. We have to be ready to work at this over the long haul. It's not something we're going to get a couple of tricks and, and become saints in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Patience is allowing things to be what they are, including myself. You know, it's, it's patsior means to suffer or to allow something. You know this line from the King James Bible, suffer the children to come to me. Uh, that's an archaic meaning of suffer, but it also helps us to understand what suffering is. Because the, what's the modern translation? Let. Let, yeah. So to allow, the, allow something to happen is to suffer it. Okay, so Christ's passion, this, which is uh, the same word as patsior in Latin, to allow something to happen. Christ willingly allows himself to undergo whatever people want to do to him. <laughs> He's okay with that uh, because of his relationship with his father. So he allows himself to be crucified. And this is, uh, so patience, which is the, it's, it's the uh, present active participle of patsior, <laughs> patsiens now, is just always allowing things to be what they are. I don't have to be in control. I can let God be in control. Okay, so but I, as I say, in this context, what's especially important is to accept myself. Okay, to accept that, that I might be weak, that I might not have the tools for discernment right away, but not to panic. You know, in the same way that uh, if you're starting to uh, learn the flute, and uh, after a week, you get your, your hands are cramping and your, your cheeks are cramping because you can't get the embouchure right and it sounds terrible. Don't panic. It takes a long time to learn to play the flute. It's okay. You know, so it takes time to learn these skills. Uh, so, but patience will help us to just acknowledge that's, that's the normal process. Uh, the last thing that's important is radical self-honesty. So really to, um, I think, uh, openness and interior freedom is, is in the Jesuit model is analogous to this. So, again, to be okay with being honest about, you know, where I'm at. I think th in this case, we've all had experience of this in the sacrament of confession, right? So to, to make a good confession requires us just to say very plainly 
that I've done things I shouldn't have done, right? And I've hurt people. So, um, and, and then humbly to receive the penance and, and go and do it. So, but this requires self-honesty, not trying to make excuses or try to you know, get out of something. or, uh, But just to say, you know, as accurately and plainly as we can, what's actually going on inside us. I mentioned it, it helps a lot to have a spiritual director. Uh, I put mother or father in here. So just somebody that you really trust that you can say, you know, I've had this thought going through my mind for a while. I just want to tell you what it is. And this person won't judge you for it, but will simply listen and sort of allow you to hear it objectively. Because a lot of times thoughts and feelings, when we don't share them, they, they seem like they're inevitable weigh us down because it seems like I've got to do such and such a thing or this thing this idea keeps coming back into my head I must be I must be that kind of person you know, I must be uh, a hateful person because I just can't stand this person sometimes when we just say this to somebody else we have the humility to share it with somebody and listen to what they think it loses power over us you know the thought just it, it dissipates because uh, the devil likes to hide I'll just say that uh, so it helps, but it's not necessary to have someone uh, to whom you can speak in this way. And again, the sacrament of confession actually has its historical roots in this, this Benedictine discernment, uh, sort of combined with uh, Celtic monasticism, this, the practice of trying to attain to purity of heart by being open about where I'm not pure. So to sort of cleanse my heart by confessing the things I've done wrong. But again, discernment is about more than just what we've done wrong. It also is about, you know, I have this desire to, um, i trying to think of an example in our community life. I think a great example would be like Mother Teresa. So she had this great desire to go to, to serve the poorest of the poor. And she went to her superiors and said, you know, I have this desire. And the superior listened and said, okay, go to Calcutta, right? And uh, so... Uh, so here's an example of a thought that kind of lingered around that when Mother Teresa shared it with somebody else, they could assess it objectively and say yes or no, right? Uh, so um, St. John Vianney wanted to be a priest, you know? And uh, he kept, was, kept being told no, 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 no. He kept trying, <laughs> and eventually he was ordained, and they shipped him off to the, the boonies uh, so he wouldn't be a problem for the bishop. And he was such an amazing confessor, they had to build a train line to go <laughs> to go to R, where, where he was stationed. Um, so discernment, uh, here's the main principle. Our thoughts and our feelings, all of these would be lumped together for the monks of old. They would have called these uh, by a fancy Greek word called uh, logismoi. Uh, it's related to logos, or word, but it's... Uh, uh, a tempting thought of some kind. So thoughts and feelings have three sources in monastic tradition. First of all, God. God can speak to us through our thoughts. The second is the self. Uh, we, we can generate our own thoughts. Sometimes, for instance, a thought would be like, hmm, I feel hungry right now. You know, that's, that's just a thought, but it comes from ourselves because we're sort of aware that we're feeling hungry. And then uh, the other thoughts come from what we call the demonic, the, the enemy of, of humankind. So thoughts that originate with God are to be embraced, 
Thoughts originating with myself are to be tempered by virtue. So for instance, if I feel hungry, uh, I need to apply the virtue of temperance to determine whether I actually need something to eat or not. So just because I feel hungry doesn't mean I should eat, right? I'm sure you've all had the experience where you feel hungry and then five minutes later you've forgotten you're hungry and you don't feel hungry anymore. Uh, so uh, we, we learn by experience again. Well, you know, I've already eaten today. I don't really need any more. So. Uh, but then that's the virtue of temperance that allows us to say, well, that thought I don't really have to pay attention to. On the other hand, sometimes if you're hungry, you really ought to eat something. You know, um, uh, And I think young monks are, are often tempted to fast too much. And uh, they, they take it amiss if I say you've got to eat something. You know, um, can't... I can't tell you how many times I've told brothers, just just go to collation, just eat something. Because then they, what they ha- what happens is instead of coming to the community meal and eating something, uh, they want to fast, and then the, the devil gets them after compliments. It's like, oh, I'm so hungry. Maybe if I just kind of head to the mailbox and th- through the kitchen, uh, you know, there might be an apple or something that I can grab. Uh, so so this is, these are the thoughts that we have. Uh, that come from ourselves that require uh, uh, and, and here's the thing so the question is so I have this desire to fast so that's a thought I want to fast uh, where does this come from what's the origin of this thought it could be God God could be stirring up in me a desire to be holy to deny myself to you know, be generous with the poor with the money that we save and so on but it can also be vainglory. Uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux in his ladder uh, of, of pride, he has this very funny, the whole book is funny. And if you can find a copy of this, uh, it's, it's well worth their time. It's short. He talks about how monks are you know, constantly looking at each other to see who's the skinniest. <laughs> you know, and like you see somebody else is only having two french fries and I put three on my plate and I'm mortified <laughs> so uh, you know this is not a good reason to fast right to sort of compete against my brothers to be holier than them um, sometimes people fast because they don't like their bodies you know this happens a lot today with people who have eating disorders for instance that's, that's not really a good reason to not to eat uh, because uh, you know, even just to you know, like one of the, another temptation. You know, we start the fast at the beginning of Lent, and I find myself every day as I you know go into the bathroom to put my contacts in, sort of checking myself on the scale. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, all right, I'm down to my last belt loop. You know, okay, maybe not such a good reason to fast. So these are the ways in which we we want to listen carefully and see where is this coming from. You know, why do I want to fast? Is it really to give glory to God? Or do I have other motives? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Right. So good. So the 
the, where I want to conclude for today and sort of bring things together uh, before I send you off is uh, what will help us to discern is a knowledge of virtue and a knowledge of vice. <clears throat> so these will help us to measure. Okay, Becoming virtuous will allow us to be able to judge whether my desire to fast is correct or not, for example. Uh, vice will prevent me from making good choices. Actually, vice will prevent me from making any choices. I'll explain that. So the vices, according to the monastic fathers, these are the ones we, we tend to focus on because, uh, temporally speaking, they're the first that we struggle with. We first become aware of our vices. Um, and uh, one of the things I, I tell brothers who enter the monastery is that our first major uh, temptation, our first major crisis in the monastery will be an encounter with our, with our vice. Um, because uh, we like to hide our vice from ourselves. <laughs> and the monastic life has a way of sort of bringing this up and making it obvious. And uh, it's, it's tempting to say, you know, when I was in the world, I, I, didn't, I wasn't angry all the time, but now I'm angry. It must be this community that's <laughs> making me angry. Uh, I should go someplace where I'm not angry anymore. What actually is happening here is that the person was angry all along. Uh, but there are ways to hide this from ourselves, like by eating or watching television or listening to loud music or whatever, just hanging out with friends. Um, and when all that's taken away, then suddenly all that anger that I've been suppressing comes out. And now I get to do battle with advice, right? So I, uh, that's, it's actually a good sign when this stuff starts to come up, okay? Uh, so the vices, though, as I say, are usually temporally the first thing we deal with because we need to uproot them before we can plant the virtues. Uh, so, virtues and vices are both types. They're related to each other in that they both have this element of habitual behavior. Okay? So, habits are patterns of behavior that come with relative ease. And they come with relative ease because we've repeated them time after time after time. Uh, and we may have even repeated them with greater and greater intensity. Uh, so, you know, if one has the, the habit, uh, I was thinking about this this morning because I was having a little bit of trouble with phlegm during the, the proclamation of the Passion. And I, at, at one point I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do about this phlegm? I just think, well, you know, I, I've sung this a bunch of times, so I just have to trust that the, the habits I have of singing will get me through this and not worry about it. Uh, it's all took place in about, you know, like half of a second. Uh, because I've sung all my life, and so uh, it's a habit I have. You know, I, I, I sing in a certain way, and I don't have to think about it so much. Now, the difference between the virtues and vices, virtues liberate us. Okay, virtues are habits that free us from our limitations. I, I always use music, you know, um, when uh, I mentioned the flute. Uh, if, if you practice the flute for many years, you don't, you don't think about where to put your fingers to get a C sharp or whatever, or, or you know, the, what you have to do with your embouchure to change octaves, right? You just, it just happens, it's, it's a habit, it's, it's, it's easy. Um, we, we, I, I got to see um, flute concerto at CSO some years ago. 
And uh, it's just so much fun watching a virtuoso performer, you know. Um, he makes it look easy, just playing these very fast passages musically. Uh, but that, there's a lot of work behind that to get to that habitual state. But it freed him. I'm not free to play any flute concerto whatsoever, even though I play the flute, because I'm just not good enough. I don't have the good habits of good flautists to be able to do that. So, um, so a virtue, by extension, is any repeated behavior that frees us to become excellent at something. Uh, and the, the, the virtues that free us to become excellent at the moral life are the ones we're going to focus on. So to, to help us to become holy. Uh, a vice, by contrast, enslaves us. It doesn't allow us freedom. Okay? The obvious example being, say, drug addiction. Uh, a person who uh, starts to use drugs uh, uh, isn't intending, at first, to become hooked on them. Right? Uh, but, after repeated exposure, uh, the person starts to crave more and more. And then what usually happens, I mentioned greater and greater intensity before. When we're locked into a vice, we tend to need sort of more and more of the thing to satisfy us. You know, this is where vice really becomes quite consuming. Uh, and But, but I mentioned uh, uh, drug addiction, but this, this can be any kind of vice. It could be the vice of pride. You know, um, the the thing about pride and thing or anger or sadness, one of the great dangers of these is that we recognize that they're they're kind of impolite. So we 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 have strategies of hiding them from ourselves and others. You know, now, if you ever speak to um, a recovered alcoholic, one of the things you often hear is that the battle is not just with behavior, like changing my behavior. I'm gonna not drink instead of drinking. The battle is with thoughts. Okay, uh, I, you know I've heard lots of stories like this. Uh, you know I, I had this conference in uh, in Cincinnati, and as I was driving to the conference center, I'm making a mental note of where the liquor stores are, and of how I'm going to drive back and stop here and get this thing. Uh, so. Then there's this battle going on at the level of thoughts, you know. So all through the conference, then battling thoughts: Am I going to stop at the liquor store or not? You know. And there's this: If I'm if I'm locked in an addiction, these thoughts are going to overwhelm me, and so I'm going to be sort of forced to go to the liquor store. If I'm recovering from the addiction, I have the tools to say no. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to drive straight home, you know. But this never goes away. This little voice that says, Ah, you could. Yeah, give yourself a break. Now is a great time to, you know, have a martini. Perfect, you know. Thoughts that celebrate. So there's this battle that goes on at the level of thoughts. Um, someone trapped in a vice will tend to make excuses. Will do things like play the victim, uh, and this permits me then to indulge in destructive behavior and get away with it in some level, right? So one of the first things we need to do. Aside from just cutting off the behavior, and sometimes that, that requires just having help of someone to just get us in a different place uh, so we, don't, we can't act on these thoughts. But then the next battle is to learn how to say no to the thought. I'm, I'm not going to do that. But as I say, sometimes these vices can be quite subtle. Uh, so again, uh, if, if, say, I'm locked in the vice of anger, I might not show it right away by 
blowing up at everything, um, though that there are people who can do that. Uh, it could be that I learned how to manipulate people, you know, so that it appears that they're doing what I want, and therefore they don't bother me. I don't, you know, I don't have to get angry. But behind that, there's a there's this antagonism with other people that makes me want to control them in some way, right? Um, or we can hide it, you know, by binge watching two seasons of Downton Abbey and eating cake. <laughs> Um, but this is an entrapment in a vice in the same way as, a, as an addict of some kind. Yeah, I don't know that we can suppress thoughts. You know, I think, I think to be able to see the thought and then drive it away, because if we suppress it, it just kind of bubbles along without us being aware of it. And that's very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So you all, you all understand what Tony's saying and what we're saying here? So, so to, to, let the, to become aware of the thought, like, I want to stop at the liquor store on the way home. Or to come, become aware of the thought, I really want to manipulate that person so that he or she doesn't bother me. Um, is actually an advancement from acting on it unconsciously. <laughs> and so again, uh, what I talked about at the beginning, silence, interiority, becoming aware of my temptations and the ways in which they distort my personality is better than trying to suppress them and pretend they're not there. But once I see them, then, then I can call on the grace of God to equip me to say, that's not right. You know, I, I want to live a godly life. I'm not going to do that. I know I could manipulate this person, but that's wrong. I need to treat that person like a person, and therefore I'm not going to do it. Uh, but a lot of times we do these things without being aware of it. right? And so that's, that's the, the first thing, is to become aware of the thought. Yeah. Well, as I said, you know, the devil likes to operate in the shadows. <laughs> he, he likes to do things without us being able to see him. Um, if you're aware of the literature of exorcism, you know you're, the, the devil's losing power when they show themselves. The, the demons are, are losing their hold on the person when they start talking. And, and if you can get them to say what their name is, then, then it's almost over. Because that's the last thing they want you to know. And what we're doing in naming vices is, is exactly that. We're, we're gaining the upper hand. If, if I can say, ah, that's the thought of anger. I know that thought. I'm an angry guy, you know. Father Edward can attest to this. I'm, I'm sort of type A choleric. <laughs> and uh, so, so uh, I have to work very hard uh, to uh, control my temper. And, and the first thing to do is to say, that's, that is, as I say, that's, that's how I'm made in, in one part. I mean, I'm just, that's physiologically more of a temptation for me than sadness is. But then I have to go to battle and say, like, I can't get into that thought. Uh, but the, to suppress it would be, again, to make excuses and say, like, well, anybody in my place would be angry given the crazy people I have to live with. <laughs> you know? Just in my own experience. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yes, we, we, we do need a, an atmosphere of acceptance and love. Because, uh, yes, that's, that's very true. Yeah. I shouldn't take that for granted. Uh, so, let me um, go on to the next page here.
The monastic literature gives us eight categories of vices. So there, there are lots of vices, just as there are lots of virtues. But it's helpful to have some kind of schema. And so the eight that we typically talk about in monastic life are, uh, first of all, the sort of bodily ones of gluttony and lust. Uh, avarice is a kind of boundary vice. It's both... Um, uh, a bodily thing because I want to have pleasures of, that, that money affords me uh, but it's also a, more of a, a rational thing uh, because we have to calculate to get what we want in a way that we might not have to uh, say with, with uh, gluttony or lust anger and sadness come next uh, they're kind of flip sides of each other anger is a way of trying to get something that's not licitly mine by, by violence Sadness is when I realize I can't get what's not licitly mine and I'm mad about it. You know, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to sink into my own self-pity. But both of them are are concerned with uh, understanding that we can't have everything we want and being at peace with that. Acedia, uh, this is a tough one to uh, describe. I have various ways of talking about it. Despondency. I think the, the, in my experience as a monk battling with this vice, it's something like irritation with God. Like, ah, do I have to go to the office again? Oh, I guess I'll go, but I, you know, I'll try to pay attention. But no, all these distractions. Uh, you know, I guess I should do some spiritual reading today, but man, that novel looks good. Uh, you know, and yeah, God makes me do all this stuff. Oh, I guess I'll just hang in there, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a kind of um, annoyance with the spiritual life because I don't see any great progress in myself. I was expecting to be a saint, and all I am is still who I am, you know. Then vainglory and pride are the most dangerous ones, and uh, we often don't distinguish between these two in the modern world, but the way I would distinguish between them is vainglory is my need to be liked by others, and pride is my lack of need for anyone. I don't need I don't need your approval. I already know I'm great, <laughs> right? Uh, I don't even need God. Uh, that's how great I am. That's pride. Pride is extremely dangerous, and 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 strikingly tempting. It's it's ridiculous if we think about it. You know, none of us none of us can uh, remain in existence for even a moment by our own power, and yet it's this great attraction to think that we're the center of the universe in some way. So. These habits of thinking and acting, these these eight categories here, uh, they they can't get a hold on us if we recognize them and push them away. Okay, but if we let them linger in us, then it becomes a temptation for real to act on them. Like we start thinking about ways in which we might actually carry them out. Uh, and and the different vices have different characteristics. You know, uh, anger and lust are usually said to be particularly quick acting. So it's difficult. It's more difficult to uh, let them linger because uh, they sort of take hold of us very quickly. Whereas something like sadness works on us more slowly. We have more time to recognize it, but it's it sort of works at a quieter level, uh, so that it might creep up on us and we might suddenly feel what Cashin calls a punishing sadness, and we don't know where it came from. We just feel depressed someday. Um, it's probably been working on us for a while. We just didn't recognize it, you know. Um, now, I want to end with virtue because virtue uh, is, as I say, secondary from a 
temporal sense, in the sense that once we make some progress in, in battling the vices, then we can work to acquire the virtues, become virtuous. But in another sense, and I think this touches on what, what Tony just said, in another sense, the virtues come first. Like, that's the goal. The goal is to become virtuous. So here's a question for you. When someone's up for sainthood, what's the first thing that they want to know about this person? Is it that they worked miracles? What's the first qualification to be a saint? A life of heroic virtue. Yes, exactly. So there's a sense in which the life of virtue is the life of a saint. Okay, so that's our goal. If our goal is to respond to the universal call to holiness, then our call is to be virtuous. Okay? And virtue, what it means, uh, literally, is it's the ability to do the right thing. It's the ability to be fully human. It's the ability to respond to life with energy and, and love and joy. You know, uh, it's, it's something that frees me from all the limitations and, and smallness of thought that I tend to have. Okay? So the, the virtues, in, in that sense, are primary, and the vices are corruptions. You know, the, the vices are, are uh, simulacra, to use a, a fancy word, you know, fake. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not virtues. Um, tradition comes back over and over again to... Uh, seven principal virtues. The three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And then the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, prudence, and temperance. So temperance is learning to find the mean with regard to pleasures that are licit. So eating is a illicit pleasure. Temperance means I eat what I need and not any more, not any less. So you can err on both sides. Um, Chastity is a form of temperance. So practicing chastity, for example, is different if you're a single person or if you're a married person or if you're religious. We have different disciplines of chastity uh, depending on our state in life. And so therefore, finding the mean uh, is different for different persons, both in terms of our physical makeup, uh, our gender, uh, so, for instance, temperance, uh, if, I, if I weigh 180 pounds and somebody else weighs 120 pounds, the right amount to eat is going to be different. There's no, there's no rule. If I'm an athlete, an athlete might eat, uh, you know, back in the old days. I don't know what they eat now. They have very scientific diets now. But I know when I was following sports in the 70s, you know, athletes would eat like a dozen eggs and, and a pound of bacon in the morning or something. Well, you can do that when you're an athlete because you need that energy. You need protein uh, if you're a football player, right? So, but for me to eat, that would be a big mistake. That would not be temperate. <laughs> I'd probably die, actually, if I ate a dozen eggs. Not right away. It would be painful, I'm sure. But um, uh, as we get older, we might need less sleep, for example, than someone who's 20. Right? Uh, young, young people who are growing need a lot of sleep. Again, athletes need a lot of sleep to repair their bodies after a game. Uh, but a monk doesn't need a lot of sleep. And, and as we get older, we tend not to need as much sleep. So temperance will change over time. Our virtue, our ability to practice virtue will change as we change. So there are no rules to virtue. And that's part of the beauty of it, is that it's a freedom to know how to respond to different situations with wisdom. Right? 
So that's temperance. Courage, as I mentioned, is the ability to execute actions under threat of pain or bodily harm. That's sort of the technical definition of it. Or broadly, I think courage is the ability to do what I should do even when it's unpleasant. Uh, so if I have to, um, you know, if, if life calls me to become a butcher, and that means I have to learn how to uh, slaughter animals and carve them up, but I, I don't like doing that. Uh, courage, you know. Uh, coraggio, as the Italians would say when you're singing a difficult aria. <laughs> uh, justice is the ability to give to others what is their due. In my experience, this is the most difficult one for us as moderns, because for us, justice is following rules. Like a just person is one who doesn't break the law. But as I said before, virtue is actually not about rules. It's about finding a mean between extremes. And what this means in terms of justice is that when I find myself in a community of some kind, I'm going to discover that some people are owed certain things. So for instance, um, uh, whether or not you like the president, the current president of the United States, we owe him our prayers. <laughs> we owe him our respect because he represents the country and he does things that only the president can do. Okay, And so even if we disagree vehemently with, with uh, his ideas, he's still owed the respect that a president is owed. Okay, So it's, it's by virtue of the position that a person occupies, but also by virtue of the contribution they make. So uh, say in a monastery, uh, the seller or the formation director, uh, these persons who have difficult jobs are owed a certain respect and perhaps more uh, free time so that they can carry out the, the job that they have without it becoming burdensome. But also then I recognize that uh, without somebody who's keeping the accounts for the monastery, we don't do very well <laughs> as a community. So someone who's willing to do that exacting work should be, we should have uh, some kind of way to honor that person. Okay, so that's what justice is. It also means being able to receive. I think one of the things where, again, in the modern sense we run into trouble is a kind of cult of informality. So say um, it was very sort of hip in the 70s, again, for bishops, say, to dress like everybody else, or priests to dress like everybody else. And if you tried to kiss a bishop's ring, he would sort of joke with you or something. Well, actually, justice means being able to receive what my office requires me to receive in order to keep the right relationship and, and the right sense of the community going. And so for um, a person in authority to, uh, you know, with a big heart and, and uh, humility to receive respect from others, is actually the virtue of justice. Okay, so that's actually a virtue, to be able to, you know, without being ashamed or bashful or something. I remember uh, we had a famous uh, academic uh, give a, a talk at the monastery, and at one point one of our oblates said, you don't realize how great this person is. He's written all these books on this, this, and that. And he, he sort of started, oh, oh, oh. And, uh, it's, but it's true, he did write all these books. And so to say, well, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Yes, I did write those books. It would be a gracious way of acknowledging that there has been a certain contribution to life that, uh, that I've made and, and other people are appreciating it. To receive that is just. All right, I've got to wrap up. 
Uh, prudence is the ability to deliberate between choices for the right amount of time with the right fo- factors involved and then, and then once I've arrived at a decision to put it into practice. Ignatian discernment is primarily about prudence, making decisions, right? Okay, the last thing I want to leave you with. The good news about virtue is that they get stronger when you practice them. You all have those old uh, prayer books that have like an act of faith in them. These are very valuable because when you make an act of faith every day, your faith gets stronger. If you make an act of hope every day, your hope gets stronger. If you make a sacrifice for someone out of love every day, your love gets stronger because you become more and more virtuous that way. So we can work at virtue. It's actually possible. Uh, and uh, if we you know, deliberately do these sorts of things, we'll actually grow in holiness in that way. Um, one of the virtues of justice is the virtue of religion, and I'm required to be at the office in one minute. So in order to practice what I'm preaching, we're going to wrap up. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Amen.